Hello, and welcome to another episode of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, Dr. Kevin Butterfield sits down with research fellow Dr. James Herdlicka to discuss his latest findings on the origins and development of American democratic constitutionalism. As a friendly reminder, there is still time to register for our upcoming bonus Forward Evening Book Talk, featuring Brian Lamb of C-SPAN and distinguished historians Douglas Brinkley, Edna Green Medford, and Richard Norton Smith. They will debut their new book titled The Presidents, Noted Historians on the Lives and Leadership of America's Best and Worst Chief Executives. Uh, this event will take place on Tuesday, April 23rd. More information about the event can be found on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org slash podcast. And now we join Drs. Butterfield and Herlicka in the studio. When people think about constitution making in the early United States, they tend to think of Philadelphia, 1787. Uh, but you're telling a bigger story. What, tell us about constitution making in, in the founding era. Yeah, that, that is what people uh, think about. They turn to first, right? Because the story is pretty irresistible. Mm-hmm. Um, in the summer of 1787, uh, 55 guys locked in a room. They're battling over how to write a constitution for the United States. Um, and that's an important story. I mean, the, it, it's sort of an irresistible one. Our guy, George Washington, of course, figures prominently in that. Mm-hmm. He's a, a pivotal figure. Um, and my story highlights that, but I think it, it as you say, it um, seeks to place that story in a larger context. And that story is constitution-making that Americans are are um, undertaking throughout the United States, both on the state level and ultimately they're they're thinking about uh, the larger thing, the larger polity that those states are a part of. Um, and so my book focuses on what people are doing in Massachusetts from the colonial period through uh, the time they ratify the United States Constitution. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, my people are thinking about constitutions throughout this whole period, and Americans generally are as well. So why Massachusetts? Why is that a good good place to focus? It's a great question. I'm not from Massachusetts, <laughs> so I hope I'm, you know, I can't be accused of bias and just saying, well, um, Massachusetts is important because I grew up there or something, sure. although that's uh, sometimes a legitimate reason. Um, <laughs> but I think it, for, for many reasons, um, Massachusetts... Um, helps pioneer a lot of the, um, what we call sort of the mechanisms and the uh, way of writing constitutions that really become paradigmatic uh, for American constitutionalism generally. How Americans write a constitution, how they ratify a constitution, what that constitution looks like. Uh, lots of those things Massachusetts contributes greatly. Oh, that's great. Okay, so let's come back to that by taking uh, a big step backward. Sure. If you were in England or Great Britain in the in the 17th, 18th centuries. Yeah. What are constitutions? I, I, I know they use the word. They talk yeah. about constitutional and unconstitutional. Of course. Use, but what, uh, how do they think about it? Yeah, they, it's a great question because it highlights one of the distinctive developments of the American Revolutionary Era. That is, uh, there's always been, for a long time, in, in places like England, a sense that there exists some kind of fundamental law that when you're thinking about government, there are there are uh, rules that are kind of permanent that you can't change on a whim. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we think of legisl- uh, you know, legislation, things Parliament does or uh, a legislature does. It can change things, you know, whenever it wants. Mm-hmm. But the idea of a constitution is that there's a fundamental set of rules that you can't change 
uh, arbitrarily. Um, and in England, uh, that notion exists, uh, and parts, there are written parts of uh, an English constitution. You think of Magna Carta or things like that. Those sure. are written down, but it's not in a single package, right? right? Um, and the, what Americans do that's distinctive is they come up with a way to take that idea of fundamental law and how do you create it? How do citizens come together, uh, agree on a set of rules and principles, um, and then uh, have the people from whom all power descends uh, consent to live under that form of government? Mm -hmm. And that's uh, the, the essence of American constitutionalism. And Massachusetts is an important part of that story. But to get there, maybe uh, I, I know a little bit about Virginia. Mm -hmm. I know that in 1776, the legislature just wrote a constitution, That's right. passed it, and moved on. Yeah. Um, something different uh, starts to, to take um, prominence in the, in the early years of the United States, uh, where it's not the legislature doing it. So right. Massachusetts is a pioneer in this? It is. That's right. Places like Virginia do write constitutions very early on in 1776. They kind of have to. Right. Right. Uh, they don't have a choice. And, and plus, the Americans don't have experience doing this sort of thing. So, well, no uh, one did. No one did. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm not going to uh, blame Virginia too much for, for doing this. They were doing the best they could. Um, by the time Massachusetts starts to write its constitution, and it, it waits a couple years for a variety of idiosyncratic reasons that we don't have to go into yeah, right now. Sure. Um, uh, by the time Massachusetts starts to do that, um, there's a sense, one, that you can't have just the sitting legislature write a constitution. Because if a sitting legislature, just a normal, everyday uh a set of legislators that you elect, if they can rewrite the fundamental law of the government whenever they want, well, that could get problematic, right? And it's not fundamental. It's not fundamental, right? They, they might just change it. They might, uh, theoretically, they could uh, change uh, their terms, right? So they could sit forever or something. Right. Uh, probably unlikely, but the, the fundamental uh, problem exists. So, there becomes uh, a notion that um, to write a constitution, one, you need to elect specific people, um, that they're going to be delegates to something called a convention. Mm. And that's their only job. Their only job is going to be to write a constitution, uh, a frame of government that's going to uh, set the fundamental rules for the government. Um, and after that convention writes that uh, piece of uh, that document, um, that document is going to be sent out to people um, in some kind of broader referendum uh, for the people to approve that. Um, and that's what happens in Massachusetts. They, they have to experiment a while before they, they figure out how exactly to do that. But uh, that's what they do in 1778. They write a constitution um, that is sent out to the people, not by a convention, by the way, this is the first try. They kind of do the legislature thing, mm -hmm. uh, and they send it out, and people have a lot of problems with the Constitution. They also have a problem with the fact that it's not written by a convention. So mm -hmm. they try again. Uh, they actually elect a, a convention, and then they send uh, that uh, Constitution out again, and people throughout Massachusetts and uh, all the towns uh, meet together, and they uh, debate about it, and then they vote on it. 
Uh, and, and finally, in 1780, they, uh, they finally ratify it, and it's implemented. Okay, so uh, you, you mentioned the, the word towns there, and, mm-hmm. and I, I, I think I have a sense that Massachusetts um, has, a, a, I don't know if it's unique, but it's, it's certainly unique to New England, um, a system of, of town meetings right. and town governments that have a, a direct involvement uh, in, in how decisions are made. Tell us about that. They do. Uh, Massachusetts is divided into, uh, in the revolutionary period, over 200 towns, and it, that number keeps growing. That's how um, the state is all divided up into these little jurisdictions. And each town has uh, responsibilities, certain uh, responsibilities for governing that that uh, uh, area and the, the people who yeah. live there. Um, so there is a distinctive form of uh, local Government is this coming out of the 17th century? Is this how Puritans set it up when they? Yeah, first? this is a legacy of okay. the colonial period, um, right. and this is how uh, Massachusetts expands. If you want to uh, settle a new place in Massachusetts, well, you uh, get a, a grant to, to form a township, and you uh, divide up the land, and so okay. forth, and so uh, so. It, it's really uh, it, it ties. Americans of the Revolutionary back, era back to uh, their colonial predecessors. And this is uh, how they assumed that uh, government is supposed to work. And it, it provides certain um, you know, possibilities, especially when it comes to something like constitution making, because you do have that um, institution that, uh, that allows people to come together and debate things, that complicated things like uh, constitution. Um, okay. So when they come together in their town meetings um, in 1778, huh? they've ultimately vote down this constitution. They do. Okay, town by town, um, and, and is that does one town get one vote? It. Let me think. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, they, it's probably more complicated than it, that. It yeah. is. It is a complicated thing. Um, the the key fact about that first attempt uh, to ratify a constitution is that you just get to vote on the whole constitution up or down. Mm-hmm. And when people find, again, uh, this is unprecedented in American history. So when people find one thing that they don't like about the constitution, and people have different things that they don't like about it, but if you have one thing that you don't like about the constitution, um, the tendency is to just vote no. Um, right. It's not to say that they hate everything about it. In fact, they probably like most of the things about it. Um, but the tendency is just to vote no and go back to the uh, default, which is they're still working under the old Massachusetts charter at that point. Okay. Um, and so um, in, the, in the next stage of things, a, a, a better constitution is drafted. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm recalling John Adams playing a role here. Tell yes. us about John Adams' involvement. Yeah, John Adams, this is uh, his moment. Uh, he is so thrilled to write this constitution. He, of course, has been writing uh, you know, thinking about these things forever. Mm-hmm. He thinks he's, you know, very much uh, qualified to do this. And he is. Uh, he, he has a high opinion of himself, but it's, it's justified. Um, as, uh, uh, John Adams is, of course, spending time in, uh, in Europe. He comes back. He's, oh, uh, this is in 1779. He's, uh, he gets the chance to write this constitution. He's, part, he's elected the, to the convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's appointed to the committee to write the constitution, and they all just let John Adams basically write the draft of it. Wow. Uh, and uh, he writes a very good draft. Uh, so one of the distinctive things about Adams's constitution is it's really well organized. A lot of early uh, state constitutions are 
not the most organized. They're kind mm-hmm. of just sort of jumbled lists, or, or at least they can come across like this. Uh, Adams has a nice preamble. He has he divides things into sections, um, and uh, and there's a clear statement of three branches. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, so Adams puts a lot of the things that he likes in government. He is in favor of a fairly strong executive, which isn't always the case uh, in early American state constitutions. He has a bicameral legislature that's uh, an upper house and a lower house. He thinks that's important. There's a judiciary, of course. It sounds very much like what we wind up with in 1787. It is. And, and of course, there's... Uh, a, a great number of connections between these early experiments in state constitution making and what ultimately the convention in 1787 does, and so that's not a that's um, not a coincidence. You know, when uh, Americans are trying to figure out what a federal constitution should look look like for the mm-hmm. entire United States, well, obviously they're going to uh, be inclined to support those things that they're familiar with. They think that these things are legitimate on the state level, so. Uh, sort of analogous structures are going to also work on the larger level. So representation right. and the forms, the branches of government, et cetera. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm making that mistake that so many um, political historians make, which is to forget what else is going on besides ideas and politics. And there's a war going on. Sure. So tell, tell me about uh, the, how that is a factor in how Massachusetts is making these decisions, because I, I have a sense that the, the war is, is hanging pretty heavily over what's going on. Of course, and, and that's one of the uh, main contributions that I hope to make. Uh, when we think about constitutions, we sometimes we can think of them uh, more in sort of abstract political theory terms. And that's important. People are thinking about that. But they also have to work, right? They have, these, gov- these are governments that have to do what governments are supposed to do. Mm-hmm. They have to protect people. They have to uh, uh, distribute burdens, uh, taxes, uh, uh, you know, manpower demands for the army, the continental yeah. army. Uh, they have to distribute those equitably. They have to be responsive. If you are a constituent and need something done that the government needs to do, uh, you should be able to contact the government somehow and get a response. Right. So if governments don't do those things, then they're not going to be legitimate, uh, that people are just going to stop listening to them, and that's bad. Uh, so wartime exacerbates all of these things. You know, it's in wartime when people are being asked to do the most. Uh, it's it's when the most governance occurs. Right. Uh, so it follows then that people are thinking about government, uh, you know, constantly in this period. It's not just when they're writing or writing a constitution or they get the draft sent them from the, the uh, Massachusetts Convention to mm-hmm. just consider it. They're thinking about these things all the time. So that kind of formal process of writing a, a constitution, a frame of government, uh, that takes place in this larger context of a wartime context. And uh, I think maybe sometimes that's lost, um, that, uh, you know, when scholars write about these things. Sure. Um, so when you, min- you mentioned uh, when you have a frustration with the government, you need to be able to express yourself. How are they doing it? Are we talking protests in the streets? Yeah. What, what are, what's, what's happening? Well, I, I guess sometimes they could. Um, but the, the more... Uh, common uh, form of doing that in Massachusetts is through a practice that I spend a lot of time talking about, which is the practice of petitioning. Okay. So petitions are a very common form of uh, uh, government, uh, of 
a, a technology of governance in the early modern period, this sort of the 18th century, mm-hmm. uh, and not just in uh, America, uh, throughout um, Europe, throughout um, South America as well. Mm. Um, basically, uh, people can write a petition to the government explaining their circumstances, explaining a problem that they're encountering, and asking and proposing a particular response. Um, and these uh, petitions require people to actually express a very sophisticated vision of what they believe legitimate and effective government uh, comprises, mm-hmm. right? So uh, a legitimate government wouldn't uh, ask people to uh, shoulder burdens that they're not capable of, um, you know, bearing, mm-hmm. right? They're not, uh, a legitimate government wouldn't allow people to be, uh, th- wouldn't leave people unprotected from threats and, uh, you know, threats to their lives and, right. and property, right? So people can write, and people throughout Massachusetts especially do write hundreds, thousands of petitions, both as individuals, as groups, as towns, to uh, authorities explaining uh, their circumstances, explaining what they want uh, done. And I find that, again, these are really, uh, you can think of them as sophisticated expressions of constitutional thought as Mm -hmm. well, that, uh, again, they're not specifically talking about you know, the Massachusetts Constitution or the federal Constitution, but they're writing about government and, and what it should and shouldn't look like. That's right. And these are people. These aren't um, people that are otherwise household names. These are otherwise pe- people largely forgotten. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, we focus on a, a particular set of uh, individuals in this period often, and that's justified, right? People sure. like John Adams, George Washington. These are important people, and they do important things. But I think. For me, one of the points that I would make is that those elite guys aren't um, isolated. Uh, they're, they're not uh, doing things that nobody else is thinking about. Every, all Americans are thinking about these problems, and uh, they actually, I think, are driving a lot of the developments in this period that people like uh, John Adams, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, um, they're not proposing things out of left field. Right. Um, they, they're responding to uh, very broad uh, questions that people are asking at the time. So you mentioned things like equitable treatment and, and the government not making demands that people can't bear, mm-hmm. uh, these kinds of things. These all sound fairly commonsensical and, right. and familiar. Are there, are, there, are there also things that they're talking about that would feel pretty foreign to us that, that are coming out of, out of a different era that, we've, that we, we've lost touch with? Or does everything feel, as you look at these petitions, these thousands of petitions, does everything feel relatively familiar and, and relatively still ingrained in our political sense? Well, I think... Uh, a lot of them are. Obviously, the contexts are very different, right? Mm -hmm. And um, what I like about uh, this period is that it kind of... Government today is so complex. Uh, There are, uh, at the time of the American Revolution, there are two, two and a half million people in what becomes the United States. Mm -hmm. Today, there's... 330 million or something like that, Uh, and uh, obviously covers an entire continent. This is um, Massachusetts, also not geographically very large either, Um, has about 350,000 people at the time uh, that we're talking about uh, during the founding era. But I think all of these basic questions of uh, government, of legitimacy, of representation, in some form, uh, people are talking about them. And I think maybe that's why 
we can have a constitution written in the 18th century that um, in some form can continue to exist, Mm -hmm. right? Even though there are so, the context in many ways is so different, um, the fundamental ideas still apply. Now, we can debate uh, what changes should or shouldn't be made to that, but I think that's why studying this period is so important, is that it's not just about the 18th century. These are legacies that continue uh, on today. So uh, I want to, because you mentioned the thousands of petitions, I want to take a moment to sort of dive into the practice of of history and Mm -hmm. and what you're doing. Uh, Where are you finding these things? What do they look like? Uh, talk, Talk to me about the archival work. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time uh, with petitions that are at the Massachusetts State Archives in Boston. Okay. And, uh, again, there are volumes and volumes of these things that are just difficult to go through, right? So they're not published anywhere. Uh, Most of them aren't anyway. Uh, And for that reason, and they're all in in manuscript, they're just written down. Uh, And so for that reason, they're kind of difficult to just go through real quick. You have to spend a lot of time doing that. And uh, I uh, spent quite a bit of time doing How long that. has this taken you to work through Well, this? It's, I've been working on the project for quite a while. I spent probably about five months in the state archive. Okay. Um, and uh, I've only, I mean, there are hundreds more that I could look at. Mm-hmm. I think I've gotten the, the, the base. I think I understand what they'll say, basically. Yeah, I've read right. enough of them. Um, but these are all sorts of um, sizes and shapes. Uh, they're written by people who are very well educated, some of them. Some of them are written by people who, uh, based on at least their spelling and uh, mm. their, uh, their writing, uh, they're probably not very well educated. But what Matt, what's fascinating is that all of these people know the basic conventions of how you do this. They know what arguments to make. They know the principles to appeal to. And uh, that's what I think makes them an extraordinarily valuable source. And so uh, by reading these things in the archive and by setting them against the more familiar sources that we off, more often use to John study... John Adams' writings. Yeah, John Adams' yeah. writings. You know, I think, I think that enriches both of them, right? This doesn't uh, tear down people like John Adams or James Madison or George Washington at all. Mm-hmm. I think it, it actually informs uh, how we understand those guys as well. So the uh, right the Massachusetts Constitution in 1780 um, uh, comes about. It's, it's right about the same time that they finally ratify the predecessor to the United States Constitution, the Articles right. of Confederation. Uh, how does that figure into the story that you're telling the the, the first attempt to create a national government? Right, it, it's crucial, and um, people are thinking. People in Massachusetts, especially, are thinking about both of these things uh, concurrently. Um, the uh, Articles of Confederation is written uh, by Congress initially in 1777. It takes quite a while to form, formally get ratified because all the states have to agree to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1778, actually, I found that um, towns in Massachusetts all uh, read and uh, vote on the Articles of Confederation as well, that uh, this is something that the general court, the Massachusetts state government, sends out to all the towns. Mm. Uh, and I found, I think, 69 or 70 inc- references to towns doing this. So wow. maybe not all of them have, have done this. Um, we just don't have records for all of them. But I think um, this is somewhat uh, 
distinctive. Um, most states don't do this. The, the state government just approves the articles. But in Massachusetts, again, you have this interesting thing where they're writing and debating constitutions throughout the 1770s. And so you get the Articles of Confederation, towns do, and they look at it more or less like a, a constitution as well. They don't uh, examine it um, in quite the same way that they examine a, a constitution yet because they're not sure exactly what this thing is going to look like. Mm-hmm. They think it's, but they know it's important that Massachusetts doesn't exist as an independent state just uh, floating in the ether. Sure. It exists as part of something larger, and that is going to be crucially important to what happens in Massachusetts. So they're always thinking about these, uh, the sort of larger constitution, uh, the Articles of Confederation, ultimately the federal constitution. One of the stories, the familiar stories that you hear about the creation of the federal constitution in 1787 is um, that it comes out of an anxiety of potential rebellion, and they often talk about Daniel Shays in right. Massachusetts. Uh, so in the 1780s, uh, 1785-86, uh, there's growing unrest. Talk to us a little bit. Who's Daniel Shays? What's going on? How does it play into what you're studying? Daniel Shays is, um, was a uh, Continental Army officer, um, former one, and the rebellion that bears, he's just sort of assigned to him. He's one of these guys in western Massachusetts who is very upset over policies that the Massachusetts government is imposing in this period. It's part of a much larger crisis of government that's going on throughout the United States in this period, Mm. largely because I think of the um, problems with the uh, Confederation itself, that this is a... uh, Americans have tried to create a union. Uh, They are doing the best they can at the moment, but there are significant problems with that. Uh, So people like... Uh, ordinary people throughout Massachusetts, like Shays and his neighbors and basically Worcester County, Hampshire County, those places, Berkshire County out there in western Massachusetts, they're experiencing heavy burdens that are being imposed on them by the state government in the form of taxes. Uh, people are being prosecuted for debt and things like that. Mm-hmm. So this is a response. They, they're not getting a response. We talked about uh, governments need to be responsive, right. right? And they're not getting a response from the Massachusetts government. Now, the, the uh, leaders of the Massachusetts government will tell you, well, look, we're doing the best we can. We're asked by Congress to collect taxes. For instance, we, we have to pay off a lot of people that uh, let us borrow money from them during the Revolutionary War. Right. And we're trying to do that. And so we can't, we, we have to impose taxes. We have to take these measures. And so it, Shays leads a... Uh, or, or people like Shays, uh, lead a uh, kind of a, a brief rebellion in 1786 and 1787 that the Massachusetts state government puts down. And this is widely seen. This is the period in which the momentum really gets going for a federal constitutional convention to revise or even replace the Articles of Confederation. So it, it, I'm going to keep us away from the familiar stuff because I really want to explore yeah. the, the, the less familiar that, that you're studying in this, in this book. Um, a bunch of people, including George Washington, write a constitution That's in 1787 right. in Philadelphia. What happens next in a place like Massachusetts? They 
uh, are clearly asked to to ratify. Uh, right. But uh, how does it play out in, in Massachusetts? Because they've already been through this a number of times. That's right. What happens in 17, I guess, 1787, 88, 89, whenever they get around to it? Early 1788 is okay. when they hold the convention. And that's right. After the Philadelphia Convention writes the thing, it's going to be sent out to all the states. And all the states are going to hold a constitutional convention. There's not going to be a, a popular ratification vote, like a mm-hmm. referendum. Uh, but there's there, people in all the states are going to elect delegates who are going to come to a specific convention, and that convention is going to vote yes or no on the United States Constitution. Is this a, a, a small convention? Is it big? What's it? It's big. Uh, I think 300 people or wow. so. I mean, it's... Um, I wish I could remember the exact number. No, but it's big. But it, yeah. It's, yeah, sure. yeah, it's it's so it, it seems large, although people at the time, of course, wonder, you know, why can't we just vote on this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the experience of people in Massachusetts, of course. That's one reason it it's interesting. In Massachusetts, has pioneered this process of constitution making, of constitutional ratification. Um, most other states haven't been able to do that yet, that that kind of mode, write a constitution like that. Right. Uh, so when they get the, uh, the um, request to ratify the U.S. Constitution, this seems like quite a uh, novelty. In Massachusetts, in some ways, it seems like a step backward because you're, you're kind of ratifying the U.S. Constitution by this sort of indirect mode that people are, are uh, somewhat... Uh, questioning of. But regardless, uh, they elect delegates who come to Boston, and it's a very fierce uh, debate in Massachusetts. The vote is very close. And the, and the, the primary criticisms are, are what? Well, uh, it's interesting. So uh, the primary criticisms leveled by anti-federalists, those who oppose ratification, are that the United States Constitution will create a kind of consolidated central government that will endanger liberty. And so uh, all the features of the federal government seem too unresponsive. Mm-hmm. The, the, the number of representatives, too few. Um, the people's voice won't be heard in this. The federal government will have powers to do things that uh, formerly uh, the state governments uh, took care of. And, and those state governments were seen as more responsive than this federal government was going to be. The president was going to be really powerful. Uh, there was no Bill of Rights which state constitutions have. Um, and so that seemed, you know, what limits will this federal government have on it? Uh, that's a concern as well. So, so we the, know the outcome. What, what won them over? Well, it's the belief that for um, a Republican government to survive in places like Massachusetts, if you like Massachusetts, which everybody in Massachusetts does, <laughs> uh, if you want that state to survive, and, and uh, sustain itself into the future, uh, Federalists, those who uh, want ratification, they argue that you're going to have to adopt this frame of government that will ultimately protect states like Massachusetts, that the federal government needs to be stronger to do certain things, um, to collect taxes, to defend the country, all of these things. Mm-hmm. It's, it's going to be legitimate. It's going to look pretty similar to, like, the Massachusetts Constitution, for instance. It's the same principles are going to operate on that level. Right. And uh, that's uh, what ultimately wins people over. So uh, one, one last question for you. Imagine I'm not a fellow historian, and all I care about is the world today, the world tomorrow. What have you learned from your study of, of uh, political thought in the 18th century that's, that you think is useful for us to think about today in the 21st century? Well, I think it's... That notion, we all 
celebrate the notion that uh, of self-government, of the people uh, rule in the United States. All power comes from the people, mm-hmm. and it's the the success of the American experiment is really based on finding a way to implement that sort of abstract idea of self-government in a tangible, practical way, right? Yeah. So con- by by coming together, by um, you know, people make compromises. Implementing a government over a real place full of real people who have different ideas, um, that's difficult. And it's not going to come without some, uh, you know, compromises or discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, what interests me about this whole period is how people succeed in doing that, why they uh, feel that it's important, and how that uh, story continues. They don't think that uh, we've written a form of government, uh, we're set for all time. No, the whole point is that you have to constantly maintain this. You have to uh, do things like vote. You have to pay attention to what government's doing. You have to participate in some way. So I think um, anyone who's concerned with contemporary world, I think, can find uh, great value in returning to how it all began in uh, revolutionary America. That's great. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.